Good afternoon. What a joy it is to be with you all. I have a special love for church plants and a special love for this church plant, uh, getting to see different iterations of where you guys are at. Um, it's been an absolute delight. I, I stalk y'all a little bit online just to check in and see how things are going and what a joy it is to be able to bring God's word to bear. Uh, let me ask for God's help, and then we will dive right in. <sighs> Dear Lord, we do uh, pray that you would help us to grasp something increasingly clearer about the love that you have for us in Christ. Would you direct our hearts towards the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ? Would you do so as we consider your word? Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, saints, go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verses 25 through 27, though just a disclaimer, I have very little to say to husbands. Very, very little to say to husbands. That might surprise you, uh, but this is actually not a sermon about husbands, but it kind of is in that it is a sermon about the great husband. So uh, I'm going to read Ephesians 25 through 27. And we're going to be focusing on Jesus Christ. Before I do that, though, just as Pastor James was talking, as the songs were communicating, uh, it is so easy in a fallen world and in a very disconnected age for us to lose sight of the fact that we are loved by God. Sometimes that phrase or that idea doesn't carry much weight for us. Parents have known the lost love of their children. Friends have known the lost love of other friends. Unfortunately, even spouses might know the heart-wrenching, gut-turning reality of a removal of love from a spouse. But one of the wonderful things about God is not only is his love the best, it's constant. It doesn't change. This is why earlier in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul was trying to root them in that very love. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. He loves us so much that he wants his people to be called his loved ones. 
you know, the church is, is uh, more of a general term, a congregation, a church, you know, an assembly. It doesn't include intrinsically anything of affection. I think it's just sweet that Paul is reminding them when God thinks of the congregation of his saints, he, he thinks of love. I don't intend to tell you anything new today, I hope not, unless you're hearing you don't know the Lord. In that case, I do pray that this falls on you with with fresh awareness and that you might be inspired to come jump into this love. Now, if you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, my, my goal is just to encourage you with how loved you are in the Lord. Uh, in 1 Peter 2, Peter tells us that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, and that this allows us to become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So how God has acted is so that we get to have him and get to be like him. And after giving the list of virtues that the godly are supposed to pursue, things that correspond to holiness, our brother Peter explains how a deficiency in our holiness is actually linked to a forgetfulness in the gospel. Whenever we don't remember the gospel, we don't remember the love of God, it actually has very detrimental effects in every direction. Uh, Not only do we not have the peace we're intended to have, Uh, Not only do we not show the love we're intended to show, but we don't live the holy life we're intended to live, which is why our brother Peter explains how that deficiency in our holiness and the connection to the gospel, he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And that's just kind of fascinating that one can forget that they were cleansed from their former sins. But we know that we can forget we've been cleansed from our former sins. That's why everything that has happened in this service has been to remind you that there's a cleansing from your former sins. This is why they keep holding up Jesus. Another song, guess who it's about? Jesus. Got a sermon for you. Guess who it's about? Jesus. Because that reminder actually has a bountiful effect. This was Peter's conclusion. He says, therefore, I always intend to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think that it's right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And dear saints, that's my goal for you this afternoon, just to stir you up by way of reminder. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27 Please hear now the word of the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Before I go any further, and I said I won't have much to say to husbands, and I absolutely won't. But if you are a husband, I just want you to remember that that's here. As Paul goes on to reflect on the goodness of Jesus and what he's done, just remember it's supposed to feel, and it has a unique um, expression in the life of a husband. Husbands, love your wives. Here we go. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself 
in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Dear saints, this is God's word. Uh, May the Lord give us a blessing in the hearing of it, and may he bless us to be doers of it. Again, he's kind of in the middle of an exhortation to husband. Husbands, love your wives. And he starts talking about how the great husband loves his wife, the church. And then he picks it back up in verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives. So the, the bulk of this text is actually a reflection, not on general husbanding, but on the special husbanding of Jesus. And I want to bring out four thing, oh, excuse me, three things about the love of Jesus. Four things about the love of Jesus. The first thing I want to think, think about is the act of his love. Sorry, three things. I said three things, I said four things. I said three. Sorry, y'all. It's been a day. Okay. First thing, <laughs> the act of his love. The act of his love. And we noticed it. We've sang about it. We've heard scripture about it. We've prayed because of it. Verse 25, he loved the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You've been died for. We were uh, watching a video last night about somebody reading books, and they were talking about really good books, and he held up one book and said, this book is to die for. It's like, bro, no, it's not. (laughs) How easy it is to forget how deeply we are loved. That indeed the gospel is a gospel of love. And how much the Bible would have us, the church, to know this love. Even so much, again, that we're called and labeled by it. Colossians 3 calls us God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What greater honor could anybody possibly have than for the beloved Son of God to pronounce them as one of his own beloved ones? But we find this is the truth for every saint. They're not accidentally lumped into a church But divine love has called each one by name. Christ loved the church. Indeed, the the church was created by such a calling. Charles Spurgeon says this, I know some Christians say they do not feel the love of Christ as much as they did at first. Oh, shame on you, brothers and sisters. Shame on you if this is true. What? When you owed him for one mercy, did you love him? And now that you owe him for 50,000, do you love him less? Indeed, his love is our fullness, for it gives us all of God. Perhaps this is why earlier in the letter, Paul prayed what he did for the church, knowing the immeasurable riches of the love of Christ and the abiding strength that it is for the believer. I want to remember earlier in Ephesians chapter 3 how Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. 317 through 18 says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Got any scrawny saints in here? In soul? The remedy is to consider, to think on, to comprehend, to come to know the love of Christ. And as you try to search out the dimensions of that love, you'll find it's unsearchable. 
It surpasses knowledge. But it's in that knowing of the surpassing of knowledge, love of God, that one actually engages with the fullness of God, that they're filled with the fullness of God. There's a connection between knowing the love of Christ and being filled with the fullness of God. For his love gives us himself. I just want to spend a couple moments reflecting on the dimensions of God's love for us in Christ. Uh, We're told in the Bible that he loves us with a preemptive love. That is, you didn't start your relationship with God. He started it with you. 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. We find in the Bible that he loves us with an undeserving love. Romans 5, 6 through 8, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So when my friend holds up the book and says this is to die for, not only is that not true, the reality is none of us was worth dying for. That'd be a misunderstanding of what occurred at the cross. It's not because you were just so to die for, he died for you. In fact, in Romans 5, he goes out of his way to make the point clear. Every now and then somebody dies for someone who's kind of worth dying for. Every now and then a good person dies for a righteous one. Every now and then a heroic act is done. But that's not what happened in the gospel, beloved. While you were weak, while you were ungodly, while we were enemies of God, then he died for us. It was an undeserving love. Also, we're told in the Bible that he loves us with a permanent love. Where all those other loves and lesser loves may fade away and falter, God's love stands, it stays, it remains. And his love is not able to be severed or able to be separated from God's people. Uh, This is the great apex of Romans 8, 38 and 39, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's stacking up how loved you are and then he says there's zero things and he's just naming the things he can think of but you can feel free to add to the list. Whatever thing you think might strip you away from the love of Christ or sever that bond in your life, he makes clear there is nothing able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. John 13, 1 says, having loved his own, he loved them to how far? It says to the end. We're also told that he loves us with a stable love. Oh, how easy it is these days to get written off. Or canceled. You mess up, you slip up, you gone. You get deleted from phones, you get blocked in texts, you get removed from email databases. How easy it is to upset someone and have them permanently withdraw their love from you. And sometimes it's legit. Sometimes people do something so horrible so egregious that a rift in the relationship is reasonable. We know a friend loves at all times, and yet we have all experienced that all friends don't. But we're told in the Bible is that God is not moody with it. 
He doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed ever. And despite how bad we sin, despite how much we sin, despite how consistently bad we sin, his love remains the same. This is what we just sang about. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. That's why his love, not mine, is the resting place. His truth, not mine, is the tie. He loves us with a stable love, right? He also loves us with a divine love. So the love that Jesus has for us isn't like the love we have for each other. In John 15, we're told that it's a divine love. Jesus said, as the Father loved me, so have I loved you. The love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit originates in God, who is love. And his love is ours. And that love will still be present and evidence to have been maintained even on the last day. That love will actually never stop. Three great virtues, the Apostle Paul would write, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Love endures forever. In fact, it's the only way to explain any saint staying with God. It's not because they stayed in the gym of the means of grace, though you must stay in the gym of the means of grace. But the reason if you stay in the gym in the means of grace is actually not because of you. It is not your love for God, but yet God's love for you. So in Revelation 3, 8 through 9, the Lord Jesus says of the church in Philadelphia, I wonder if you remember the encouragement to them, which is an encouragement to all the faithful who resist the devil. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have, get this, but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So how do those with little power remain faithful to God? Perhaps you're here today and you think, man, I'm one of the saints with little power. How do I know I will remain faithful to God? Bless you with a million blessings. Okay. Spurge, can you give me that green towel, son? Thank you. Just, thank you. I usually travel with one of these because y'all can see. How do those with little power remain faithful to God? What Jesus says is what, what everyone will come to know on the last day after all has been examined, after saints keep going, even those with little faith still being faithful to God, he says, it's actually because I have loved you. And the last dimension just to consider in the love of God, as the text explains, is that he loves us sacrificially. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us. A sacrificial love. Oh, love fuels the cross. Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. We don't mean a Disney kind of love that's shallow and fragile. No, but a powerful kind of love that dies and then resurrects. 1 John 3, 16, he says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. 
At my last church, we would do membership interviews, and it was one of my favorite things to do. We would ask everyone who desires to join our church, after we go through all this stuff, and you all have done membership interviews here, but after we go through all this stuff, we would say, do you love God? And obviously, they're trying to join a church, and so they would all say yes, or else interview over. <laughs> they would all say it differently, but they would all say the same thing. They'd say, yes, we love God. Some people would say they love God happily. Others would say, yes, they love God, but it would be said soberly. You can almost see and you can hear in just how they say it, the, the shame that they don't love him as they ought to. But the reality is that everyone still said it. True for every saint. Do you love God? Yes, I love God. But the important question we would ask was actually after that question. Because we asked them, do you love God? They would answer. And then the next question we would ask them was, why do you love God? And watching the people of God respond to that question is a scene that rivals a perfect sunset. It was something to marvel at every single time. There is this countenance that overcomes them all. There is this smile that everyone would get this satisfaction of soul that would leak out and they would all say, because he loved me. Part of the glory of Jesus's love is who's permitted to enjoy it. A glory of the Christian gospel is the otherworldly love of Jesus evidenced in who benefits from his sacrifice. Who the friends are that he lays his life down for. Who the us is when it says he laid his life down for us. Who this church is made up of when it says he gave himself up for her. Who is this who is so precious to him that he paid a priceless amount for her? Who is this church that as Acts 20 says, it's the church of God which he obtained with his own blood? And the shock of the gospel is that it's not perfect people. It's not even primarily decent people. The shock of the gospel is that Jesus loves those who are not lovely at all. All that love, all that dimension of love poured out, assigned to those who don't deserve it at all. We don't deserve to be loved forever. We don't deserve to be loved perfectly. We don't deserve to know the love of God. We don't deserve for Jesus to die for us. When you see young love and romance presented in our day, when couples get together, it's cute, right? You know, they start doing that thing and acting really awkward. And they like each other. And then you sit them down and you say, okay, why do you like each other? You know, what do you like about them? And, and then they blush and they share their little list of things that provoke their affection. Well, you know, he's been at church and caught my eye. He's a super, such a servant. 
really funny. He's kind. I like that. Or he'll say, well, I mean, I just, you know, have you heard her pray? I mean, I just really admire her walk with the Lord. And, you know, she just really, you know, loves the saints. She's really pretty and, you know, and so on and so forth. And you, you understand what caught each other's attention, why they receive each other's love. Not so with God. You know what we get from the Bible when asked, <laughs> what does Jesus like about sinners? Why would he come for them? There's no list of dope qualities about people in the Bible that cause God to die for us. Zero. There's not a single attribute that you have that caught God's attention. When it's explained, it's all answered by him. Why do you love them? Me. No, no, no. Why do you love them? Because of me. I will be gracious to whom I'm gracious. Learn what this means. I desire mercy because God is love. We don't have any lists of reasons why he loves us. If anything, we have an infinitely long list of reasons why he wouldn't. And this isn't us being overly self-deprecating or undervaluing what we're bringing to the table. No, God says so too. The angels think that too. What's crazy is that God knows that we are far worse than we know. He knows that we're sinful beyond our awareness. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, we know God knows the heart. He knows it. And still, he loves us. It's supposed to be perplexing. This is why we love to sing. Amazing love. How can it be? You're really supposed to mean the question part of it. That thou, my God, would die for me. Are you familiar with the book of Hosea? God writes to his people to help them appreciate what it's like to be in a relationship with them. We have the story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea the prophet and Gomer the prostitute. When God was seeking to communicate how wicked his people are and what it's like to be with them, he says it's like being married to a prostitute. And though you love them perfectly, you're not loved fully by them in return. But God says, but I still love them, and I will love them. And by my love, I will change them, and I will have mercy on them, and I will be faithful to them. And in my righteousness and steadfast love, I will make them faithful to me. His love is that powerful. It doesn't just save, but it sanctifies. It doesn't just sanctifies, but it perfects. And while the picture in Hosea is jaw-dropping, the reality of the church is more amazing. That's a prophet and a prostitute. We're talking about the Son of God and us. For we are greater sinners than Gomer. We are far more unfaithful than her. And he is a greater husband than Hosea. For he is far more holy than him. And yet in love, he has done the unthinkable. 
He died for us. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This Jesus loving the church and giving himself for her was done with complete sobriety and clarity from the Lord Jesus. We get married and we don't always know all that we're marrying into. You ain't know about that one cousin. Or, you know, some stuff comes out. You're like, whoa, this, this was not discussed in premarital. God knows you. All creatures before his sight, we're told, are naked and exposed. And yet, knowing the full of us, he placed his love on us. You ever heard the phrase of someone marrying up? Some of you are living that life right now. It means that someone married above their class and their worth. I certainly did. Jesus did not. He did not marry up. There's not a word for how he married. He married utterly down. He literally had to come all the way down. He married so down, he had to empty himself just to marry us. He was made low to purchase us back. He had to die just to marry you. But he loves you so much that he did. The cross communicates in vivid detail that our sin debt was so extreme that only extreme payment would be sufficient. That we are so stained by sin that only the blood of the Son of God could clean us. That we are so deserving of an eternal wrath that only an eternal substitute could save us and praise God that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. This is his glory, that he loves us Though we're unlovely, though we're ungodly, though we're unholy, though we're undeserving, though we're unworthy, though we're unwanted, though we're uninterested, still he loves us and died for us. This is his love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we was still stuck in the mire, Christ died for us. Beloved. Point number two, the effect of his love. We have the act of his love, and now we consider the effect of his love. Look at verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Uh, To sanctify and to cleanse means or requires that before meeting him, we were not clean. We were unholy and filthy. Spurgeon quote number two. Elements of a good sermon, you need two Spurgeon quotes. Spurgeon quote number two. He's writing on the experiential aspect of knowing the love of Christ. Why, if a man should want to know about slavery, he might go and hear a lecture by an escaped slave, and it would be very well for him to do so. But if he could go to the place where the whip is cracking and the back is bleeding and see the thing for himself, 
then he would understand the cruelty of slavery indeed. So if a man would know the love of Christ, he must lay himself out to discover the deformity of sin and the awful degradation into which crime casts mankind. And then he will know that the love which stoops from the highest heaven reaches down to the gates of the deepest hell, thrusts its arm up from the very elbows in the mire to pull these accursed ones out of the pit of destruction and make them blessed forever among the shining ones before the throne of God. There is no way to know the love of God without the gospel. And as often as we study the gospel, what we're actually studying is the love of God. This is what's so horrible about the prosperity gospel is it doesn't give people the gospel, meaning it actually keeps people from knowing the love of God. God's love is not displayed in that you never experience hardship. That's a lie. God's love is never displayed in that you're rich in material things. That's a lie. God's love is displayed in that he didn't leave you in your sin, but sent you a savior and who but himself would come to save. This is love. In Ezekiel 16, the people of God are likened to an abandoned baby neglected and unwanted, discarded and wallowing in its own blood, abhorred and unpitied. God says, but I spoke to you in that condition and I said, live. And that's our testimony. We were helpless, wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, naked, without hope in the world. And that's when God looked at us and said, live. And our chains fell off. Our heart was set free. We rose, went forth, and followed thee. And by the word of God, you grew. He tells the, 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 the um, saints in, in Ezekiel 16, by his word they grew, by his word they were cleansed, and he made them exceedingly beautiful and advanced them to royalty. How did what happened to Israel happen to Israel? God said, I did that, and I did that by my word. You were like a neglected, unwanted, wallowing baby until I came to you and said, live. Until I spoke to you and cleansed you. Until I covered you with my love. Until I made you exceedingly beautiful and royal. He says, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you declares the Lord God. The beauty of the people of God is owed to God bestowing his goodness on them and beautifying them. He, he grants them to be beautiful. Christ died for a bride and not just to keep her as she was, but to make her holy like him. That's what verse 26 says, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So the word of the gospel comes to us, it saves us, it doesn't keep us there, but it starts to work on us and then transform us into a bride who's actually fit for her husband. 
There ain't enough special effects on the planet to make that picture clear. What Christ desires for the church, he accomplishes for her. That's the, that's the heart of love here. He does what she needs and provides what she lacks. That's what love does. Love gives for the other's sake in the Lord. We didn't just need to be saved from our sin, though we did. We need to be made to be like the Lord, which he did. He desires his bride to be holy, and so he himself cleanses her. For there's no way to become clean in the Lord unless the Lord makes you clean. He cleansed them by the washing of the water of the word. And the question is, what does this mean? Is this through Bible study that we're washed in the water of the word? Is this what the Lord Jesus came for? I don't think so. I think it's referring to the body of communication from the Lord with that pronounced emphasis on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a washing of the word that actually cleanses us from our sins. And that is the gospel. And we know what that word is. It's the word of the cross, as Ephesians says in 1.13, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. May we never forget how we entered into the sweet marriage with the Lord Jesus. May we never lose sight on why we were set apart to him, completely by his choosing, totally by his working. He sanctified us, set us apart for himself, made us a people for his own possession, called us by his name, adorned us in his righteousness, covers us by his love. Ours is the sin, his is the forgiveness. Ours is the mess, his is the cleansing. He cleanses us by washing us by his word. That's why what's happening now is so important and it's so vital for the life of a saint. We must sit under the word, receive the word, which is able to save our souls. This is why he told Timothy, pay careful attention to your life and to the teaching. Why? Because that actually saves his people and himself. Oh, the word that tells of the cross of Christ and where in love he gave himself up for the body. Listen, the gospel is the most unflattering indictment and at the same time, the most warming proposal at the same time. For in it, we just hear about how miserable we actually are. And even for the person who feels like they're acquainted with miseries enough, the gospel actually multiplies your burdens before relieving it. It tells us that our state is of the most helpless kind and the most hopeless one. Dead in our trespasses and sins. The best efforts we can muster up are filthy. Our hostility against God is actually deadly. We're actually his enemies. That we are thoroughly defiled, thoroughly deficient. Indeed, we are thoroughly dead, which means that as his enemies, we have wrath resting on us. Naturally, we are separated from the God of goodness. But his word washes. And we hear that though dead in our trespasses and sins, he has made us alive together with Christ. We hear that anyone who turns from their sin and comes to Jesus, they'll be freed from their bondage to sin, delivered to life 
everlasting, raised to newness of life by his resurrection. This is for anybody even in here today. How does someone get the love of God? Well, they just must believe the love of God. Those who believe the love of God get kept in the love of God. There's no product that can cleanse our nature. You can go to the store and find something to clean out the stains of your clothing. You can find some resolve to clean out the stains in your carpet. But what cleans off the stains of the soul? And I'm not just talking about the stains you had before you met Christ. I'm talking about the, the, the new stains, the fresh stains we, we still bring on. Well, the same thing that washed us is the same thing that washes us. And there's only one remedy. It's the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, cleanses us from all sin. He's able to do it. He's willing to do it. And we're told that he effectually does. How this works is, the Word tells us how it works. The Word tells us how it works. It's it's not that we in ourselves are left to ourselves and then by our own effort try to become more godly, become more sanctified, become more clean. No, it's as we are washed by the water of the word, which is a passive washing, as we hear the gospel and as we hear with a believing heart, as we receive it with humility and with trembling souls, as we posture ourselves under that flow, it actually has a washing effect. It's the keeping agent of God. It's his eternal Ziploc bag for all of his people. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Y'all know the next line, right? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So not only did he give his life up for the church, he applies his death to the church. And in doing so, he washes them and cleanses them and sanctifies them unto himself. And this brings us to the final point, and that is the aim of his love. So you have the act of his love, the effect of his love, and lastly, the aim of his love. Verse 27 says, so that he might present the church to himself. In splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God died for us so he could have us. And he does everything needed for us to have him. He pays for our sin debt, he washes us and makes us into new creatures. And he forwards that work and even binds it with his promise to complete it. Jesus is not like Dr. Frankenstein. You know, the the mad scientist who raised a monster to life, but upon granting life to this monster, it's still a hideous monster. 
He done made a creature, and the creature was hideous. It was a living, hideous creature. That is not how the church works. Jesus did not raise dead sinners just to have living, dead sinners. For he resurrects and he beautifies. And the end is in view when he works. This is why Romans 8 speaks in completed terms. I don't know if you've ever noticed, uh, as Paul is talking about the sovereignty of God expressed through the love of Christ in the gospel, listen what he says. And we know, this is 828, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Read in that, presenting them to himself in splendor, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, holy and without blemish, right? Conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among brethren, look at verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also, doesn't say glorifies, but it says glorified. How is that possible? Well, the work of Christ is that effective. It's that complete. It's that guaranteed. The end of that work accomplishing its goal is absolutely certain. So much so that Paul speaks of it in the past tense, glorified. It's been accomplished already. Not that it's been expressed already, but what's needed for it to be expressed has already been provided. The Bible says the saints in the land are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. How is it that saints become excellent? Well, he makes them delightful. Right? Jesus has not just chose us by his love and died for us in his love, but he calls us into his love through holiness. Right? Holiness then is keeping the commands of God, correct? But what are the commands of God other than commands of love? His rules are but rules of love. This is why Jude doesn't tell the difference between keeping his commands and the love of God. You remember his exhortation to the saints when he's calling them to develop in the faith, to grow in likeness. He says, build yourselves up in this most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep ourselves in the love of God. Or when the Lord Jesus tells his disciples to be holy and to obey his commands, but for him to obey his commands is to abide in his love in John 15, 10. Jesus comes, he gives us the sacrifice of himself so that we might be delivered from our trespasses and sins. With him is forgiveness that he may be feared. And that same love that has saved us is the same love that sanctifies us. It's the same love that grounds us in our quest for holiness. And it's the same love that will one day present us to be with him in splendor. Remember, how does any of the saints show up in heaven still making it, still going, other than the fact that he has loved us? There's going to be a line, maybe, I don't know, it might be a big group, but let's say there's a line and all the saints are entering into glory. Everyone's reason for while they're there, why they're there, is the love of God entirely. It's because he died for me and he sanctified me and he sustained me and he secured me and he brought me here. And when I get to see him, he'll perfect me. 
It's all gospel everything. His love produces ours. His love sanctifies us. His love makes us like him. That's why, dear church plant, I just encourage you to not grow tired of hearing about Christ's love for the church. It has all the power for all the stuff you are all trying to do. It is his love that steers us. It's his love that controls us. It's his love that fuels everything about us. It's his love that drives all of our holiness. That's why we don't have a problem singing. Ever since by faith I saw the streams that flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. This is why we're eager to say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And in that, God is removing spots. He is removing wrinkles. He's removing blemishes. He's purifying us. The Bible says that as we behold him with unveiled face, we're actually being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We are increasingly becoming like him. And 1 John 3 says it's going to be the sighting of Christ that will one day completely transform us to be entirely in the image that we are being conformed to. None of us who walk with the Lord will die without spots. You're spotty. You're wrinkly, spiritually speaking. None of us will die without blemishes. But we will all be raised totally without them. We will all have some already purged at death. Some may not yet be. But on that last day, they will all be gone. And at the end of it all, when it's all gone, when we're in splendor, when we are fully conformed to that holiness and blamelessness that he has purchased us to, we will understand it was nothing of our own merit, nothing of our own worth, nothing of our own might, but all of his love. We are not naturally sanctified. We're not naturally worthy of splendor and honor. We're not naturally blemishless or holy. We're not naturally without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, but by his grace, We will be. He loves us too much to leave us lacking in any Christ-likeness. If he dove from glory to this to save us, how will he not also with him also also give us all things? That isn't talking about how you're going to pay your bills, though that's true too. The context of if he has not spared his own son but has given us up, it's in the context of being glorified, the love of God having its full work. Do remember how we will be in glory. Remember the song in Revelation 19. Even as our sister read it earlier, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. And if you stop there, you start to think that the reason the bride is finally ready for her husband is because she made herself that way. But the text goes on to say how she made herself ready. 
His bride has made herself ready, verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. All the linen the saints are going to be rocking in glory. That perfected linen is God's linen. There's any righteous works, as it says they will have. Those will be the righteous works done by the righteousness of Christ. We see that the love of God is clothing and sanctifying the saints. And that's how we can understand how the Bible concludes where it does. The, the Bible doesn't say that, man, I hope this all works out. But we, we get a snapshot of the wedding day, of that final day, when all that Christ has died for, all that Christ intends to produce, actually gets produced, and we get to see it in the end of this book. The reason that we have it in Revelation 21 is so that as we're living our lives now and as raggedy as we might feel and as shoddy as our bride of Christness is, it keeps us hopeful to know the bride's going to be decked out one day. The bride will be ready. I tell you what, there's a lot of people late on weddings. You know who's always on time and who's always fully dressed to the nines is the bride. She done ordered her, her, her dress like months ago. <laughs> she done tried it on a thousand times. And on the day of the ceremony, she's ready. And that's what Revelation 21 does. It speaks to the church and says, this, the church is going to be ready. The work that Christ died for, or the work that Christ performed in his death, the work that he promises to keep going by his, sanctifying, um, by his sanctifying grace is one day going to be perfected in her fully preparedness as his bride. So Revelation 21, we're told that there is a church that comes down prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's completed, as the apostle John would say. Anyways, dear saints, again, Ephesians chapter 5. Remember that the love of Christ is not just what has purchased us from death, but has provided our sanctification. It's not just what provides our sanctification, but what continues to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. It's not just what cleanses us from every unrighteousness, but it's the means through which we will be presented to him in splendor. It's, it's not just the means through which we'll be presented to him in splendor, but it's the means through which we'll be perfected holy and blameless on that last day. And this is all because the one who has promised is faithful. The revelation ends by saying and showing that he who began a good work in us will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. The bride that Christ died for will be ready. Let us pray. Oh, dear Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for how he's loved us. We thank you for all we have in his love. We do pray, Lord, that this love will shape our love. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to rejoice in your love, to consider your love, to reflect on your love, to be shaped by your love, to be eager to show your love, to be eager to walk in your love, to be eager to preach your love, to be eager to be changed by your love, and help us to keep ourselves in your love. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.